0: Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and we're going to talk about the Electoral College. It's in the news all over the place. Episode 48, BACA versus Colorado Department of State. This case came out last week. It's a Tenth Circuit case. It was one level below the Supreme Court, and it's from right here in Colorado. In this case, a three-judge panel of the Tenth Circuits, Court of Appeals, Federal Court of Appeals, it was a two-to-one decision. So two of the judges came out on the side of Michael Baca, and the other one said he shouldn't have won because the case was moot, and they shouldn't have gotten to the issues of um, whether or not an elector for President of the United States under the Constitution can exercise his discretion or not. But the two to one majority said that he could. And we'll get into that in detail so you know everything that you need to know about it. And so while this decision specifically involves Colorado, it has national implications. It's going to completely change how we've been electing presidents, at least on some level. And we'll talk about that. Now, this was a 125 page opinion. And you all know how much importance I put on reading these documents if you really want to have an informed opinion about them. And that's why I always put a link to the actual cases in the show notes so you can check it out if you wish to. And it's there again. So even though this this opinion is really long, the first half of it is all about very important but boring legal issues, jurisdiction and standing, mootness, the standard of review for failure to state a claim. So all of that's important, but most, well, at least half of it is about that. It's not about the Electoral College. So the Electoral College discussion starts on about just after page 60, and the majority opinion ends at 114. Then there's like another 11 pages that the dissent wrote. And like I said, the dissent would have dismissed the whole thing without getting into any of these issues. And if this case is eventually overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, and it is overturned on one of these other issues, he's standing mootness, etc., electors like Michael Baca here, who's the, the main plaintiff, the one who won. There are two other ones that got dismissed. They are now emboldened. They're going to keep doing this. They're going to vote for whoever they want to vote, regardless of what the state law says, until it's resolved. So getting a definitive ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court before November of 2020 would be good. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, and you can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. This week, we're glad to be brought to you by Straightforward Shooting. Straightforward Shooting offers individualized, fun, and safe firearms training and pepper spray instruction. Their firearms training classes are comprehensive and unique. They guarantee personalized instruction addressed to you and your needs. Whether you're a beginner or an advanced student, their experienced, NRA-certified instructors can improve your skills. Check them out at StraightforwardShooting.com and tell them DK Williams from Speakeasy Ideas sent you. You can also follow this podcast on social media, Twitter at TheLawDKW, and on Facebook.com slash the Law with DK Williams. Love to hear from you, and if you're so inclined, check out the Facebook page, review it. I'd like to get some more reviews on there. Like it, comment, subscribe, and share. You know the deal. So who are the named participants in this? We mentioned Michael Baca. There was also Polly Baca, and apparently they're not related at all. Then there was a third guy, Robert Nemanich, and I might be mispronouncing his name, nem a-N-I-C-H, to manage. I'll go with that. So those were, those were the three plaintiffs that started this. The defendant is the Colorado Department of State. At the time this was going on in 2016, the Secretary of State was Wayne Williams. But in the same election of 2016, Jenna Griswold defeated him and she is now the current Secretary of State here in Colorado. So these three presidential electors... The two Bacas, Michael and Polly, and Robert Nemanich, did not want to cast their vote, their electoral college vote, according to Colorado law. That Colorado law requires them to vote for whomever gets the most votes in the Colorado election. And that was Hillary Clinton in 2016. She beat Donald Trump in Colorado. And so by Colorado law, all of Colorado's nine electors were legally required by statute to vote for Hillary. However, these three wanted to vote for John Kasich instead. Now, why would they want to do that? I'll I'll let my friend and former Colorado state legislator, Glenn Scott, explain. He recently wrote, quote, So what went down in 2016? Democrat electors, all three of these guys were Democrats, they attempted to block Trump by offering to vote for an alternative Republican. And these three here in Colorado, they picked John Kasich. The idea was to entice some other Trump electors who didn't want Trump to win if they had an alternative Republican to vote for. So that's why these three Democratic electors didn't want to vote for Hillary. I mean, she lost. It didn't matter. She wasn't going to get it. But if they could get a different, more moderate or whatever, likable Republican in their eyes, they thought that would be superior to Trump. So they said, hey, we're going to vote for Kasich. Hey, some of you Republicans vote for him too. And if we get enough of you guys to do that, We can have this tossed into the House of Representatives and let them decide this. And Glenn goes on it was rather far fetched, but mostly because the electoral result was too wide. So keep that in mind. You need 270 electoral votes to win. Trump had 304. So if this movement was going to succeed, they needed 35 more Trump electors to defect for this to work. So that's a lot. But it's very conceivable that the electoral votes in twenty twenty are much closer. And if it's only five or six difference, or the winner only has five or six more, and if this tenth circuit ruling holds up, and I think it should, it might work then. Because they had in this effort several unfaithful electors. And now with this case having the success, no matter what happens, it's gonna embolden electors throughout the country to do this if they want to, to vote however they want, not according to state law. So Baca, Baca and Nemanich are the name parties. But a group called Equal Citizens, that's what they're called, Equal Citizens, they're funding this litigation and similar litigation in Washington state. Uh, their website is in the show notes. They've got a really elaborate website or informative website. They tell you what they're trying to do. And they've got a segment on their website about this lawsuit from Colorado, with the 10th Circuit, which they just won. They say, it is a view of many that the Constitution secures to presidential electors the freedom to vote their conscience. For president and vice president, we agree with that view. But whether you do or not, everyone should agree that the question should be resolved before it creates a constitutional crisis. The group website goes on. Equal citizens. We're helping electors in Colorado and Washington who were threatened or fined by their state government for voting their conscience in 2016 so as to ensure that the Supreme Court resolves this question before the next election. We believe, they go on, the U.S. Supreme Court will affirm elector freedom. That will give states the opportunity to respond before the next election. The most likely and effective response, this is them now, would be for states to join the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. 270 electors were pledged to the winner of the National Popular Vote automatically then the additional electors from non-compact states would be certain to create a margin significant enough to neutralize any effect of elector independence. Now, I really don't follow that at all. That logic doesn't make sense. If I'm I'm missing something, let me know. But this National Popular Vote Interstate Compact can't overcome this decision. This opinion makes the National Popular Vote Compact meaningless because the entire point of the National Popular Vote is requiring electors from each state to vote a certain way. And this 10th Circuit case said you can't require them to do that. So I'm not sure where they're coming from in that regard. But what is clear is that this group wants to end the electoral college. I think in their mind, they're attempting to use a philosophy summed up in a quote by Abraham Lincoln, who said, the best way to get a bad law repealed is to enforce it strictly. Now, I don't think it's a bad law, but they do. That's what they want to happen. And they've had some success with this already. The Colorado governor, current governor, who won in 2016, Jared Polis, was asked by the BDA, hey, what do you think about the Tenth circuit decision? And he said, well, to me, it means that we just got to get rid of the entire electoral college. That's what this group wants. They're, they want to say, hey, we're voting people. We don't know what the hell they're going to do. This is crazy. So let's get rid of it. That's their goal. Keep that in mind. And it's already working with people like the governor of Colorado. He's playing right along. He knows what's up. He's using it the way they intend it to be used. So the other case that is being championed by this group is in Washington. Guerra, G-U-E-R-R-A versus Washington State Office of Administrative Hearings. So in that case, it's a state court decision. And in that case, the state Supreme Court of Washington ruled against the faithless electors said, nope, you guys are going to be punished according to state law because you have to vote the way state law tells you to. But this Baca case versus Colorado is in federal court, and the 10th Circuit says the electors are free. So these are opposite conclusions by a federal appeals court and a state Supreme Court. So this is the kind of legal conflict that the Supreme Court might decide to clarify. When there are conflicts, they will sometimes clear them up, depending on how important they are. So in this decision, you get this three-judge panel from the 10th Circuit. So it was a two-to-one decision, and Judge Carolyn McHugh wrote the opinion. She was appointed by Obama in 14. She was joined by Jerome Holmes, who was appointed by W, George W. Bush, in 06. And the dissent was Mary Beck Briscoe, who was appointed by Clinton in 95. So you've got no political division here, really, right? So the two that ruled in favor of the electors having independence, one was appointed by Obama, one was appointed by W, and the dissent was appointed by Clinton. And we'll let Judge McHugh tell you about the facts. This is how she laid them out in the opinion. Michael Baca, Polly Baca, and Robert Nemanich, collectively the presidential electors, were appointed as three of Colorado's nine presidential electors for the 2016 general election. Colorado law requires the state's presidential electors to cast their votes for the winner of the popular vote in the state for president and vice president. Although Colorado law required the presidential electors to cast their votes for Hillary Clinton, Mr. Bacca cast his vote for John Kasich. In response, Colorado's Secretary of State, that was Wayne Williams at the time, removed Mr. Baca as an elector and discarded his vote. The state then replaced Mr. Baca with an elector who cast her vote for Hillary Clinton. After witnessing Mr. Baca's removal from office, Ms. Baca and Mr. Nemanich voted for Hillary Clinton, despite their desire to vote for John Kasich. That's part of this plan, right? the 10th Circuit says, we conclude Mr. Baca has standing to challenge his personal injury, removal from office, and cancellation of his vote. Now we'll get into why he was the only one. Polly Baca and Nemanich didn't win this case. They were tossed out. They lost because they didn't actually vote for John Kasich. They actually voted how they were supposed to, according to Colorado state law. But since Michael Baca literally scratched out Hillary Clinton's name and and wrote in the ones he wanted to do, and he was removed and had his vote nullified, he gets to continue in this case. He gets to make the arguments. And one, Tenth Circuit goes on, On the merits of Mr. Baca's claim, we conclude the state's removal of Mr. Baca and nullification of his vote were unconstitutional. As a result, Mr. Baca has stated a claim upon which relief can be granted, and we reversed the district court's dismissal of his claim. We therefore remand to the district court for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. That's how they always say it. So this case has been ordered back to the trial court, but somebody's going to appeal it, I assume. They want to get the final ruling from the Supreme Court. So one way or another, I think everybody wants finality on the decision. Again, especially because we have an election just over a year away. Now, let's jump into the heart of the legal analysis. This is from an article by the Constitution Center, which I have linked to in the notes. In a dissent in a 1952 case, Justice Robert Jackson wrote that presidential electors, quote, "...although often personally eminent, independent, and respectable, officially became voluntary party lackeys and intellectual non-entities to whose memory we might justly paraphrase a tuneful satire. They always voted at their party's call and never thought of thinking for themselves at all. That's the Supreme Court justice in an earlier case in 52, which we're going to talk about this this Ray v. Blair case because it ties in, but the 10th Circuit says it's not controlling. And it's, and it's not, they're right. It's just similar, but very different. Don't you love the way lawyers talk? So the 10th Circuit deals with that case, distinguishes it. And then in a section of the opinion-labeled legal background, they give us some more important facts. And as we always should, they go to the applicable constitutional language, quote, The United States Constitution provides that each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. So each state gets... The same number of electors as they have representatives in Congress, plus two, because they all have two senators. And that's in U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2. Tenth Circuit goes on. These presidential electors convene in their respective states and vote by distinct ballot for president and vice president. The candidates receiving votes for president or vice president, constituting a majority of the electors appointed, are elected to those respective offices. Then Circuit goes on, letting us know what's up. Colorado's presidential electors are appointed through the state's general election. Nominees for presidential electors are selected at political party conventions or selected by unaffiliated presidential or vice presidential candidates. After being appointed, the presidential electors are required to convene on a specified day to take an oath required by state law and then to cast their ballots for president and vice president. Colorado requires the presidential electors to vote for the presidential candidate who received the highest number of votes at the preceding general election in this state. That's Colorado Revised Statute Section 1-4-304-5. So that's where it comes from. It says if you're a presidential elector, you have to vote for whoever got the most votes in the state election. So that section is a statutory provision that gets thrown out here by the 10th Circuit. The state cannot bind electors that way, according to the 10th Circuit. And if this decision holds up, I don't think panic is in order. Of course, many will panic and attempt to foment hysteria and demand something be done. It doesn't matter. They just want to demand something be done because they're scared. They don't know what to do. But I think what's going to happen is that people are just going to take the election for electors seriously, because right now no one does. It's just perfunctory no one does because of that statute it makes the electors just clerks or functionaries with no discretion you just have to do this now people can say if they have discretion they can say hey if i'm elected as an elector i'm going to vote for candidate x or i'm going to vote for whoever gets the most votes they can pledge to do whatever they want so people will have to pay attention to who they're voting for which they don't have to do now so paying attention i don't think is a big deal now politically i know a lot of people don't pay attention but requiring it as a function of electing a president, I don't think it's that big of a burden. I have faith in some people, some. And again, this is the way it was designed. The entire electoral college was designed to vote for people that you trusted to make these decisions. The vote for electors originally was not just a rubber stamp. And we'll get into some of the language of the founders on that topic. And again, we might think this is a horrible idea and these people do, right? That are behind these lawsuits. But if they wanna change it, if anybody wants to change it, I don't see any way around doing it without a constitutional amendment. They're going to have to amend the constitution to get rid of the electoral college, which I don't think has a high likelihood of success. And you may be asking, hey, Dave, what if somebody says I pledged to do X and vote for whoever, but then they don't? What recourse is there? Well, there's not any. And the court's going to get into that. But that person's political career who reneged would be over. or certainly suffer a, a hit. That person would be facing a loss of trust in the general public because he said, I promised to do X and he didn't. And it's kind of like a president saying, read my lips, no new taxes, and then raising taxes. That guy, we all know who that is, George H.W. Bush, reneged on his pledge, and there are political consequences to backing out of that. So sometimes broken promises have political consequences, but you can't force someone in any level of politics to keep a promise they made as a candidate. So that problem exists everywhere, not just in the electoral process for the Electoral College. Some factual history from the Tenth Circuit case. In April of 2016, Mr. Baca, Ms. Baca, and Mr. Nemanich were nominated as three of the Colorado Democratic Party's presidential electors. And after Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine, that's who it was for vice president, won the popular vote in Colorado, they were appointed as presidential electors in the state. Mr. Nemanich contacted Colorado Secretary of State Wayne Williams to ask, what would happen? Hey, what would happen if a Colorado elector did not vote for Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine? Secretary Williams responded that his office would likely remove the elector and seat a replacement elector until all nine electoral votes were cast for the winning candidates. Secretary Williams also warned that the elector would likely face perjury charges, apparently because you signed a pledge to do this to abide by the law. So they did some legal wrangling because the managed didn't want to be bound by that. Neither did Ms. Baca. They tried to get an order staying enforcement of the Colorado statute. It failed prior to the vote. So they had to show up and vote with Colorado intending to enforce the statute. Back to the case. On December 19th, 2016, the Colorado electors met to cast their votes. Before voting commenced, Secretary Williams, no relation to me, required the electors to take a revised oath that affirmed they would vote consistently with the results of the state's popular election. Secretary Williams also warned that any elector who violated the oath may be subject to felony perjury charges. Despite taking the oath, Mr. Baca crossed out Hillary Clinton from his presidential ballot and wrote in John Kasich. Secretary Williams then removed Mr. Baca as an elector, refused to count his vote and replaced him with a substitute elector who cast a vote for Hillary Clinton pursuant to the state statute. After this series of, of events, Ms. Baca and Mr. Nemanich felt intimidated and pressured to vote against their determined judgment and cast votes for Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine. Mr. Baca attempted to vote for Tim Kaine as vice president, but the secretary refused to count his vote. Secretary Williams then referred Mr. Baca to the Colorado Attorney General for criminal investigation. By the way, the Attorney General did not prosecute Mr. Baca. So you can see why Polly Baca and Nemanich were tossed out of the case because they went ahead and complied with the state law and voted for Hillary. Mr. Baca, however, remains in this case because he didn't. He defied the state statute. He defied the Secretary of State. So for that, I give him props. The court goes on. Mr. Baca argues that electors are constitutionally permitted to exercise independence and discretion based on Article 2 and the 12th Amendment, and that Colorado's interference with that power by removing him and nullifying his vote for refusing to comply with a vote-binding provision in that section of the statute violated his constitutional rights. So he wins on that. And the Tenth Circuit includes Colorado, obviously, New Mexico, Utah, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Wyoming. So all the electors in those states right now are free to vote as they wish, as long as this holding stands up. And right now it's the law and appeals are going to happen. And this decision will no doubt embolden electors in other states, even outside the Tenth Circuit, to do the same thing until the Supreme Court rules on it one way or another. So a resolution before 2020 would probably be good, methinks. The Tenth Circuit goes on. They refer to the federal constitution, which is the place you should start, right? They say the two to one majority. The original federal constitution set forth the method for selecting the president of the United States, in Article 2, Section 1. At that time, the constitution provided, in relevant part, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and together with the vice president, chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. So here we go. This is the important part for this case. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the senators and representatives. 10th Circuit goes on with details about this entire process and about how if there's no majority winner in the Electoral College, and by the way, it's not called the Electoral College in the Constitution. That's just what we have come to call it as a shorthand. So if there's no majority winner, the presidency goes to the House of Representatives or they're going to decide the presidency. And each state in the House of Representatives just gets one vote. So Rhode Island gets one vote. Massachusetts gets one vote, doesn't matter how much difference there is in population of each state. And again, this demonstrates the federalist nature of the process. It's not democratic and it's not supposed to be. The whole national popular vote movement is based on an incorrect premise. And that premise is that democracy by itself is the primary goal of governance. Everything they talk about is we're Democrat, we're democracy. One man, one vote. That's what matters. Voting matters. But democracy is not the primary goal of governance. And no one actually believes it is when they stop and think about it. Democracy is majority rules. But no one believes 51% of the people should be able to ban a book or shut down churches or send all redheads back to Ireland. Nobody believes that. But the entire basis for so much of this modern call for democracy is the belief that democracy is the end-all and be-all of governing but we know it's not. So point that out to people when they make that argument. The entire premise of the constitution was to keep democracy in check. And every check removed from that process brings us closer to a pure democracy, which brings us closer to 51% ruling over the rest and being able to ban books or shut down churches or send the redheads back to Ireland. Oh, Dave, that'll never happen. Yeah, those are extreme examples, but we get closer to that, and that's not good. Too many have just bought into this fallacy without contemplating that this fallacy that the closer we are to a democracy, the better form of government we will have. And that's, that's a dangerous concept. Voting has its place, but it is not the end-all and be-all of politics. The minority must be protected from the majority, and we know this when we stop to think about it. All right, back to the Tenth Circuit. Under the original version of this section of the Constitution, the electors each voted for two candidates. The person with the most votes became president, while the person with the second highest number of votes became vice president. So this was a bad idea and the court talks about why it was a bad idea adams won in 1796 for president but he was stuck with jefferson as his vice president and they were in different parties and they weren't gonna help each other out they opposed each other most of the time then in 1800 you had the jefferson burr tie that went on for over 30 rounds of voting before they broke it so they changed the system with the 12th amendment largest part of that was they voted for president and vice president separately Still, if no one gets a majority, which is possible if a third person or at least a third person get some electoral college votes. So the top two might be each close to getting a majority, but that third candidate might have won a handful of electoral college votes enough to keep either one of the two main ones from having a majority, which is what Baca was trying to do. And this whole movement, he was just part of this movement. They wanted to get enough of the Trump electors to vote for Kasich to prevent a majority and throw the election into the House where they could come up with somebody else. That was their plan. And even though it didn't work in 2016, it may be a strategy people try to do in 2020 and hereafter. But again, that's not it's not going to be a strategy that's going to have any application most of the time. Most of the time you get a winner and everybody's okay. He's, he wins. We'll just move on. But if there is failure for one of the candidates to get a majority of the Electoral College votes, it still goes back to the House where each state still gets one vote. And so since you've got seven representatives in Congress in Colorado, for example, I assume they would vote, their seven would vote to decide the one vote for Colorado. And there's been one other amendment that affected the Electoral College, which was the 23rd Amendment, which was ratified in 1961. That one gave the District of Columbia some electors. Didn't change anything else. Then circuit goes on. Little case law explores the independence of electors under the 12th Amendment or whether electors can be removed for exercising such independence. To the extent the Supreme Court has commented on the question, both the court and individual justices have suggested the Constitution, as originally understood, recognized elector independence. Quick aside here, the person writing this was appointed by Obama. She's talking about original understanding of the Constitution. Good. Props. And again, remember, the issue isn't if the electors should have that independence. The issue is what does the Constitution say about it? These are separate things, and we've discussed this many times over the course of now 48 podcasts. Whether or not something is a good idea or good policy or bad idea or bad policy is a separate question than whether or not that thing is allowable by the Constitution or not. Those ideas have to be separated because far too often you hear people on TV or the radio argue about a policy. We need to do X because it's good for people. It's a good policy for us to implement. But if the issue is whether or not it's constitutional, it's got nothing to do with the value of the policy. If the Constitution requires something that's a bad policy, we've got to change the Constitution. But they're separate things. So the Sid's Circuit cites some Supreme Court cases where they dealt with electors, but none of them are exactly on point. And we already quoted Justice Jackson in that Ray V. Blair case from 1952, and we're going to talk about the specifics. And That was the last time the Elector, electoral college was discussed by the Supreme Court, and this is Jackson's dissent part of it. And he says, no one faithful to our history can deny that the plan originally contemplated what is implicit in its text, that electors would be free agents to exercise an independent and nonpartisan judgment as to the men best qualified for the nation's highest offices. Uh, Being president and vice president, another specific justice in a concurrence and another opinion wrote. uh, Justice Harlan II, John Marshall Harlan II, one of my favorites. He wrote, "The college was created. The electoral college was created to permit the most knowledgeable members of the community to choose the executive of a nation whose continental dimensions were thought to preclude an informed choice by the citizenry at large." Okay, let's look at that for a second because this part about. Picking the most knowledgeable members of the community seems pretentious and maybe insulting. It's the first thought that jumped into my mind. But that same idea applies to every election we have. Legislators, executives, candidates sell themselves as being knowledgeable, more knowledgeable than the other guy, or wise, or fair, or whatever. Something better than us mere voters. So in every election, we're talking about looking at the best member of the community. And so that was the idea behind the Electoral College to elect people to elect the president. Again, if that's a bad idea now, gotta change it via constitutional amendment. And the 10th Circuit has to address this Ray case. And so did the Washington Supreme Court in that case that they recently decided the opposite way, saying that no, you unfaithful electors will be punished for not doing what the state law said up in Washington. So here in the 10th Circuit, this is what they said. In Ray, the Democratic Party challenged the Alabama Supreme Court's determination That requiring a primary candidate for presidential elector to pledge support for the party's candidate violated the 12th Amendment. So, the Alabama Supreme Court said the party, the Democratic Party in Alabama, could require that pledge. If you want to run for elector as a Democrat, you had to pledge, I will vote for whoever gets the most votes in the state. But there was nothing to prevent someone running without a party as an independent. They could still do that, they still had a way to become a presidential elector without signing that pledge. But if they wanted to run as a Democratic elector, they had to sign the pledge. The U.S. Supreme Court said they could do that. And the Tenth Circuit distinguishes between a pledge, a requirement, to run as a party member with the law here in Colorado that you had no way to get around. Had a way to get around it in Alabama, no way to get around it in Colorado. that's one thing. And they also talk about how this pledge requirement that was okayed in Alabama to be an elector on the Democratic ticket, they could make you sign the pledge, but they could not enforce it. And here in Colorado, if you break the law, they enforced it. You see what they did to Baca. So again, two important differences. And in the Washington case, which I have not read, but it's my understanding that they held that if a party can make you pledge to vote a certain way, like they can in Alabama, then the state can force you to vote a certain way. So I think that's an important distinction. And I think Washington got it wrong. Making you promise to do X is not the same thing as punishing you if you don't do it. So let's look at that a little bit more. The Supreme Court in Ray, and the Tenth Circuit's talking about it, said the applicable constitutional provisions on their face furnish no definite answer to the query whether a state may permit a party to require party regularity from its primary candidates for national electors. So Supreme Court says constitution doesn't say anything about this issue in Alabama. In the Ray Court, the Ray Supreme Court discussed the history of voluntary pledges by electors, and wrote, even if such promises of candidates for the Electoral College are legally unenforceable, so they go on, Supreme Court doesn't say if that pledge is enforceable or not, which is one of the reasons we are here where we are with BACA. The Tenth Circuit said the Ray Court, Supreme Court, did not decide whether the pledge in Ray could be legally enforced. So that didn't come up in Ray. It's come up here with BACA. The state did enforce a state law, which is also different from a pledge. And the 10th Circuit points out that there was still a way to become an unaffiliated elector in the Alabama case and avoid the pledge required by the Democratic Party. There is no way for Baca or anybody else in Colorado to avoid the statute in this case. 10th Circuit says, Indeed, Ray, the Ray case, does not decide whether pledges taken at any stage of the process can be enforced at all, let alone through removal of an elector and nullification of the elector's vote, which is what they did to Baca. And if this case does go to the Supreme Court, which I think it will... Ray is going to be one of the major cases they discuss. The 10th Circuit gets into a long discussion about some other issues, including the 10th Amendment, the president's appointment and removal power, and some other things. And then they get back into the 12th Amendment, the elector stuff. 10th Circuit. As the text and structure show, the 12th Amendment allows no room for the states to interfere with the elector's exercise of their federal functions. In short, while the Constitution grants the states absolute plenary, power, to appoint their electors. So they can appoint their electors however they want, basically. It does not provide the states to power to interfere once voting begins. Then there's lots more history discussion, including talk about a faithless elector in 1796, whose vote was counted. 10th Circuit says, nor does the 12th Amendment contain any language restricting the electors' freedom of choice or delegating the power to impose such restrictions to the states. Thus, the historical context of the Twelfth Amendment supports our, the Tenth Circuit's, textual conclusion that states cannot interfere with the presidential elector's votes and that presidential electors have the constitutional right to exercise discretion when casting those votes. Tenth Circuit goes on, since that first faithless vote in 1796, there have been approximately 166 additional anomalous votes, anomalous means faithless. So 166 additional faithless votes listed, certified, delivered, and counted. Indeed, 10th Circuit goes on, we are aware of no instance in which Congress has failed to count an anomalous vote or in which a state, before Colorado right now, has attempted to remove an elector in the process of voting or to nullify a faithless vote. Tent Circus tells us, in the most recent 2016 election, Congress counted 13 anomalous faithless votes from three states. By counting these votes, Congress acted consistently with the treatment of every faithless vote cast since the creation of the electoral college. Although most electors honor their pledges to vote for the winner of the popular election, that policy has not forfeited the power of electors generally to exercise discretion in voting for president and vice president. To back up the, their conclusion, the 10th Circuit majority cites Alexander Hamilton and Federalist number 68, quote, It was desirable that the sense of the people should operate in the choice of the person to whom so important a trust the presidency was to be confided. This end will be answered by committing the right of making it not to any pre-established body, but to men chosen by the people for the special purpose and at that particular conjuncture. So Hamilton's talking about, we're gonna pick people to pick the president and we're gonna pick them to use their discretion. Hamilton goes on, cited by the 10th Circuit. A small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass will be most likely to possess the information and discernment requisite to so complicated an investigation. So you're voting for these people to use their discernment to make their own decision. And they've been selected to do that. 10th Circuit says it is obvious from Federalist 60s, another one, that Alexander Hamilton did not anticipate that state legislatures would elect the president by bound proxies, by a statute like they have in Colorado. John Jay expressed a similar view in Federalist 64 that the, quote, president is to be chosen by select bodies of electors to be deputed by the people for that express purpose. Again, they're gonna pick people to use their discretion to vote for the president. In short, the 10th Circuit said, the Federalist Papers are inconsistent with Colorado's argument, inconsistent with the argument that the electors are mere functionaries who can vote only for the candidate dictated by the state. These contemporaneous interpretations of the federal constitution support the conclusion that the presidential electors were to vote according to their best judgment and discernment. So after talking about the Federalist Papers, the Tenth Circuit gets into Justice Story's famous commentaries on the Constitution. They say, Justice Story begins his commentary with the recognition that the framers and the public expected electors to act independently at the time the Constitution was adopted. 10th Circuit says, contemporaneous authoritative sources, mainly in the form of the Federalist Papers and Justice Story's commentaries, support our reading of the Constitution as providing the electors the discretion to vote for the presidential candidate of their choice. And that, to borrow a phrase from Stone Cold Steve Austin, is the bottom line. So this journey's got a long way to go before it ends, and we'll be keeping an eye on it here at The Law and let you know what's going on. Though, in some, in my opinion, Voting for electors with actual discretion is what is required by the Constitution. And going back to that after decades of not doing it, of doing it wrong, doing it right is not going to be that big of a deal. The Supreme Court has said that these electors can still be required to pledge to vote for the winner of the popular vote of their of their state, but they cannot be made to honor that pledge. So this ruling, if it stands, and unless I'm missing something, this, this ruling kills the national popular vote movement. I know they said it doesn't. Somebody's gonna to have to explain that to me because I don't see it. The entire basis of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is that states take away all discretion from the electors. This case, correctly, says states cannot do that. So people will just have to start paying attention to the people running for elector. That's hardly a tragedy. And regarding the goal of ending the electoral college, which is what the people behind this case want to do, I don't see an amendment to the constitution succeeding. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, and we'll let you know, obviously, right here at The Law with DK Williams. And that's me, I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law Episode 48, a 10th Circuit case from just last week, Baca versus Colorado. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Twitter at The Law DKW and Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. Like, share, spread the word. Until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends live dangerous.